All right, you guys. So uh, how many of you guys remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? You guys remember those? It's usually older people like my age and, and maybe even older that are like, I remember those. I, I don't, I'm not sure kids now are doing the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Are there any little, like, uh, little kids or parents of little kids? Do you guys still do that? No? Okay, so here's what a Choose Your Own Adventure book was. Basically, you got to go through a story. You got to read a book, and it was fiction, right? You got to go through a story, but you got a customized, personalized story as the reader. Because you'd be reading along, and you would get to a part where there was a decision to be made. How do you want this story to go? At this point, you could choose I would, I would do this in this situation or I would do this other thing. And then based on that decision, you'd turn to like page 27 and you'd get to keep going. Had you chosen the other one, maybe you'd turn to page four. And you had this track through the story that the further you went became more and more customized so that every single person who read that book got to experience it for themselves in their own way. And man, we love customized things in life, don't we? If you think about it, there's a lot of things in your life that are very specifically yours. I stopped at Starbucks on the way today, and I'm not really that Starbucks guy that's like there all the time. Um, I know them, they don't really know me. Like some of you guys, if they know you, you go too much. Just saying, okay? So, but I know them, and I know what I want. Like I get there, and I I, I want a tall mocha. I only want one pump of the chocolate because I still want to taste the coffee, and I don't want any whipped topping on it because I want as much caffeine as you can put in the cup. That's me. That's the way I'm wired, right? I like this customized coffee. And when I go there, I can tell them exactly what I want, and I get it. And you guys can tell them what you want, and you get something entirely different, right? A lot of you guys know exactly what you want when you go to Burger King or when you go to Starbucks. And we have this very customized perception of this world that we live in. In fact, it even shows up in, in like our clothing. A lot of us have different styles, right? Some of us have resigned ourselves to like, I'm finally at that age where just a t-shirt and jeans is, I'm not gonna try anything crazy, right? But some of us have to look so unique, don't we? It has to be our own thing. Do you guys remember bedazzling? Do you know what that is? So like you add like permanent glitter to your pants, right? I hope mostly that was ladies, I hope, right? But there was this trend that was like, I could make this more mine. Like, these are my jeans, but they could be more mine if I, like, bedazzle them, right? Or you'll, you'll cut holes in your shirts or you'll do different. It's like, it has to be mine. It has to be different than yours. Just, it couldn't be possibly the same thing that you're wearing, right? Or we do that with our cars. Any car people in the room? Okay, your car isn't really special until you've made it different than everybody else's car, right? Or there, there are gun people that do the same thing with their guns. We find ways to make everything in our life unique, and customized. The problem is, I think we also do that with our walk with God. The, the thing is, I think that we have this tendency to want to have a customized faith. We want to essentially choose our own adventure as we walk with God. We have these opportunities where we can choose to, to lean into something that we really like about God or about the faith and ignore something that we kind of don't like. And then we get tuned into that thing, right? And, and sometimes it's just a topic, it's, a, it's a, a category of something that you're just really into, right? And I've talked about this before, but um, the Bible is designed in such a way that the cross is the focal point, right? And the further you get back in time toward the creation, the fuzzier it gets, there's not a lot of details. And the further you get into the future, into the prophetic stuff, there's not a lot of details because God wants you to focus on the cross and yet the way I'm wired 
Man, I would just spend all day geeking out on end time stuff. I love that stuff, right? I could, I could dig into it and read, read and, and listen to stories and, and all this stuff becomes so interesting to me because that's what I like. And there are people who have wired their entire faith around a topic that they just love to learn about. Or a lot of times our customized faith is based on the parts of God that we are most comfortable with, right? I really connect with God because he loves me. And nobody else in my life loves me, right? And that person that feels abandoned is like the way that I see God is this mountain of love. And that's, I, that's, that's how I see him. Or maybe you didn't have a good father. And so when you think of God, you think of this good father, right? Or you've been wounded and he's, he's that healer. And we really like this custom version of God. And you'll even hear people say, well, to me, God is fill in the blank, or I like to think of God as my best friend. Or he's my safe space. And here's the thing. None of those things are wrong. Right? If you've got a good perception of who God is or how your faith is supposed to work out because of this good, loving God, that's good. The problem is we tend to lean into those things. And when we come up to something in Scripture that makes us uncomfortable, we do this choose-your-own-adventure thing and we're like, eh. I'll just, can I skip over to, where's that cool passage? And, and, and we go back to the stuff that we like, right? We get to this, this stuff in, and we're confronted in our faith with some things that make us uncomfortable. And instead of learning about that and leaning into that and letting that change us, we just go, I mean, that's not how I want to experience God. And what we end up with is you get these arguments in culture or even in the church where you've got a New Testament God and an Old Testament God. And you've got this, this version of God that makes you comfortable. And then there's this version that you don't really understand or that makes you uncomfortable. And so you just ignore it, right? And you find people that really lean into the stuff that they like. And they end up with a custom but shallow faith. And see, one of those areas that I think that we're uncomfortable with is God's holiness. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The holiness of God. And when I say holiness, here's what I mean, so that we're all on the same page. I'm going I'm to say that it is two things. First, that God is entirely different. He's unique. He's, he's not me, right? When, when I think of God, a lot of times I think of a better version of us. Like he's, a, he's the best father. He's the mightiest warrior. But in, in the context of people, you guys, God is not us, in any way. He's not like you. He's not like me. God is different. He's other. And so when we talk about his holiness, it's that he's so much beyond what we are, right? But also when we talk about God's holiness, God is morally perfect. He is the definition of what's right. I use this illustration with my, my youth group all the time. Um, he's also the definition of what's true. If God were to walk in here today and say, man, isn't it amazing how green the sky is today? You'd go, that's dumb. The sky's been blue for like ever. And then you'd go outside and it would be green because God said it was green. He's the definition of what's true. He's also the definition of what is morally right. If he says so or is something, it is right. And so he's holy because he's perfect. He's never wrong. And he's also entirely different than us. He created all of this, right? He's so special. And so here's the thing. God's holiness has some pretty major repercussions on us. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn here in a moment to Exodus chapter 19. We've been in a study of the book of Exodus. And so to catch you up, where we're at in in Exodus 19, um, the people of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt, right? And so they were slaves in Egypt. God did some amazing things through the plagues and then through the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea and the destroying of the Egyptian army. And so suddenly they are no longer a slave nation. They've been delivered and then they wander through the wilderness, and they get, they get manna along the way. They get water from a rock along the way. And God has been providing for them, and they get to Mount Sinai, to the mountain where Moses had met God in the burning bush. And they finally get there, and God says to, to tell them, hey, did you notice how much I cared for you? Did you notice how powerful I was to deliver you? I want to be your God, and I want you to be my covenant people. How do you feel about that? And they go, in verse 8, they go, yes, sign us up for that. We love the care. We love the power. We love what you've done for us. We'd love to be your people. And he goes, cool, then let's meet. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 9, Exodus 19, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told them what the Lord had said. And so you got to realize at this point they had experienced God's goodness, right? He had taken care of them. He had delivered them. He was powerful, but he'd never, they'd never met him. And so what he says is, I'm going to come down on the mountain and I'm going to speak and they're all going to hear me talking to you, Moses, so that if you ever say again that God said something to me, they're going to believe you that God actually talks, right? So that's the setting. Verse 10, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you don't or do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. What? Wait a minute. Wait. I thought, God, I thought your job was to make sure these people didn't die. Haven't we been like, we had a lot of opportunities to die over the last few months. I feel like uh, like the Egyptians... There was a way that they could have died. They could have starved to death. They could have, been, they could have gotten so thirsty that they, they died of thirst. And you've done all of this to make sure they lived. And now he's saying, they might die here. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. And here's what I want you guys to catch. Up until this point, the nation of Israel had not been in any danger. They may have felt like they were, but they weren't actually in danger of the Egyptian army because God was on their side. They weren't actually in danger of starving because God was there, right? And the moment that they thought they were, there's suddenly these bread products that fall from heaven, right? And then the moment they think there's no water, literally in a desert out of a rock, God goes, you want some water? Like, and the rock breaks open with water. They were never in any danger until now. Now they're in danger. Now God says, hey, if you do this moment wrong, you're going to die. Verse 19. 
After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and he washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. I don't know why that's in there. God didn't say it. Moses did. We're going to keep moving. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Like, duh, right? Can you imagine this moment? Put yourself in this moment. You'd seen God split a sea in half. You'd seen pillars of fire guide you at night and a pillar of smoke guide you during the day. You'd seen an entire nation, the world's foremost nation of uh, uh, Egypt and their, their army destroyed before this God. And then he says, if you do this moment wrong, you're going to die. And then there's lightning and thunder and the, the cloud around the mountain and it's shaking. And then you hear the, the, the trumpet sound. And they all go, oh no, this is that, like, this is the moment, right? We better get this right. And they're terrified. I would have peed myself. This is such a scary moment. Can you imagine this supernatural earthquaking mountain, right? Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. That must have been scary right? That must have been a terrifying moment for people that had, I mean, I think a lot of these, these people, they were, they were in slavery, but they probably grew up hearing about God, but they had only been experiencing him. They had only really known about him for a few months. And at this point, everything they knew about him was how big, how powerful, how scary he was, but he had also always been on their side. And in this moment, it's like, do this wrong and you die. And then he speaks, and I'll bet you that moment was so scary. Imagine if you were at the foot of that mountain and you actually heard the audible voice of God that trembled and, and destroyed rocks and it's just the sound of it. Now we're gonna skip a few verses and the reason is that Moses and, and God have this discussion, this back and forth about how many times you need to tell the people not to touch the mountain. And Moses is like, I swear I explained it to them. They're gonna be okay. And then we pick it up in verse 24. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. And that's the end of our chapter. If you're going to flip the page in your Bible, chapter 20 is when we get the Ten Commandments. This is the stage on which that is set. In fact, Right here at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel are going to stay there through the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and into Numbers. They're going to be here for months. And this is the stage that is set for all of that. Everything that happens for the next year or so in the history of Israel and for all of that content in our Bible, they're at the base of this mountain where the audible voice of God shakes the rocks. And there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a cloud and there's a threat of death if you do it wrong. And this is the moment that these people are introduced 
to their God. They've seen his power before. They've seen his care for them, his love for them. But he says, if you're going to be my covenant people, you need to understand something about me. If we're going to have a relationship, you need to know that I am holy. In fact, I'm so holy that I'm dangerous. Think about that for a minute. In our choose-your-own-adventure version of our faith, our customized Christianity, we don't like to think about our God as dangerous, do we? We like to think about our God as gentle, maybe powerful, but powerful in a way that is like, he fixes, he's my fixer, right? He takes care of my problems. He heals, he loves, he wraps me up. We, and none of those things are wrong, right? But we limit our version of God so much that I think it makes us uncomfortable to acknowledge or to say that our God is dangerous. And that's what he says here in this moment. He says, if you're going to have this relationship with me, you need to understand something. I'm so holy. I'm so different. I'm so not you. And I'm so perfect that I'm dangerous. What would that feeling be like for you in that moment? Now look at this. What's interesting is how this fits in the overall narrative of Scripture. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to look at some other things here in the Bible. I've color-coded the slides so that you guys could keep up, okay? Um, I hope it, it's as easy as I imagine it will be. But here's what I want to do. I want to start by going back to creation. Because when God started the process of his relationship with people, it was designed to be so intimate, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden. And it's not like God was somehow different in that moment, But they got to walk with him. And I imagine this ideal, perfect garden, right? And and my garden at home, it's pretty perfect, but it's perfect because my wife goes out there and gets bloody hands picking the weeds and pulling the thorns and like it's hard work, right? And these guys just got to enjoy this perfect garden. And they're walking with God in it. And they're completely exposed, but they're also completely known and loved by God. But then something happened, right? Genesis 3, they broke it. They broke that perfect connection with God. And when they sinned, basically God said, there's one thing that I don't want you to do. There's just this one thing that you can't have. And they ran at that one thing and said, I want to do that so bad. And they broke it, right? They, They went after what they wanted. But something changed in that moment. Suddenly God's holiness became dangerous because an unholy man was now confronted with it. Up until that point, they could literally like play hopscotch together. They could high five. They could be best friends and and they could literally be in each other's presence and there was no problem. And the moment Adam sinned, what did he do? He hides. And when God says, why are you hiding? He goes, because I'm afraid of you. Fear is his Immediate response because suddenly he's confronted with the holiness of God. See, God was always holy. It was when Adam was unholy suddenly that was dangerous, right? And that's what we see here at Sinai too. When confronted with God's holiness and combining that with his power, they're afraid. Adam was afraid and they're afraid. 
And I think, uh, just to bring this home a little bit, how many of you have ever thought or heard somebody say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about that thing, right? Like, do you remember 2020, God? What was that? That was, I don't think that was cool, right? Like, we're going to waltz into the throne room of God and be like, explain something to me, (laughs) right? How many of us have had that thought or heard somebody say something like that? Like, when I get there, I'm going to just ask him. Let me show you what the throne room of God is like. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to leave Exodus. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. I'm going to guess he was doing pretty good in his relationship with God, probably better than me. I don't know about you guys. I look up to Isaiah. I think he probably was one of the rock stars of the faith. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, that's an angelic creature, okay, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Let's think about that for a moment. There are creatures whose specific design, their created reason for existence is to hover around the presence of God and always just exclaim his holiness. But once isn't enough, they just have to repeat it over and over. Holy, holy is our God. He's so holy. Over and over. And that's not enough. They have to explain it. They have to say the whole earth is full of his glory. There is nowhere that his glory doesn't go. He is that holy. And those creatures, when they speak, now, I know, I've been in some well-built buildings. I can imagine that God's throne room, the temple in heaven, probably the best built building ever. And those creatures, when they say, holy, It shakes the place. The doorposts rattle. Think about that for a minute. They're not even the God sitting on the throne. They're just the ones hovering above the throne. And when they say holy, it shakes the place. That's how important his holiness is. That's the throne room of God. And that's what John saw in Revelation chapter 4, too. He goes in there and he's like, I can't really describe it. It was like everything was made out of jewels and it was, a, it was this big. Th- and then he, he describes basically this exact same scene, except there's a, there's a picture of humanity there. And humanity is constantly over and over revealing how holy God is by bowing back down to him and giving away everything they ever had. He's that holy. And yet we feel like, I'm just going to waltz in there. I'm just going to march into God's throne room and be like, can you explain why 2020 was a mess? (laughs) And at the same time, there's there's a creature going, holy is God so holy, you can't be here like this. And we're like, well, I'm just going to, I have a right to like ask questions, right? (laughs) Look at what Isaiah says to this in verse five. He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined He says, I'm a dead man. I should not be here. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's what the throne room of God did to Isaiah, one of our heroes of the faith. 
one of the rock stars. He gets confronted with the holiness of God, and he goes, I'm going to die from this. It's so scary. See, here's the thing. Here's a problem. God's holiness means separation. He's so holy that his holiness will consume and destroy the things around him that aren't holy. Think about the sun in our, in our solar system. We really benefit from the sun, don't we? Like our planet is warm because of our proximity to the sun. But if you get closer and closer, there's a point when you can get too close to the sun and that same warmth, that same brightness will consume you, destroy you. God's holiness means there's a certain separation. There's a, there's a chasm that has to be created between an unholy people and a holy God. There's a problem, though. God's not comfortable with that separation. And so what we see throughout Scripture is he created these opportunities for an unholy people to experience him. He's not okay with this, you do your thing and I'll be in the background. He wants there to be a relationship. And so what we see through scripture are these, these places or these opportunities for, for God's people to experience a holy God. And one of them is here at Mount Sinai. What we see is that when God steps onto this mountain, it becomes a holy place. First, it was the burning bush with, with Moses, right? Remember, take off your shoes. This place is, don't come any closer. This is holy. And then he brings his people back there and God says, you should probably put some ropes around the mountain because I don't want your people to die. It's that holy. The next time that we see this then is in the tabernacle. And what's interesting about Mount Sinai, I don't know if you caught it or not, not only is the place holy, it really limited who could go up on the mountain. Moses could go up on the mountain. At the end there, we read that Aaron was allowed to go up on the mountain, and God talks about the priests and the people and how they're not really allowed at the peak, okay? Well, what we see then is the next time that God gives one of these opportunities for unholy people to experience a holy God is in the tabernacle. And the way the tabernacle is built is that you've got this room or this, the innermost part of the tent that was the holy of holies, where God's very presence dwelt. And it was so holy that only Aaron and a select few people could go in there. And then there was another layer of the tabernacle where the priests could go. And then there was another layer where the nation of Israel could go. And then if you weren't part of the nation of Israel, you could get close to the outside of the gates or of the, the curtains, right? And then we see it again in the temple. The tabernacle was simply a moving temple. It was made out of tents, and then they finally found a permanent home for it, and they built, made it out of rocks, but it served the exact same function. You had the holiness of God, and then these layers of separation and then ultimately, we even see it at Jesus, right? If there ever was a time when an unholy, or an unholy people could connect with a holy God, it was in Jesus, right? In fact, Hebrews 1 says that, that God spoke lots of different ways through the years, but the clearest example, the clearest definition of who God was, was in his son Jesus, that we see God the most in Jesus Christ. And there's this moment in Jesus' story where he's on this mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And so what happens is Jesus has these friends. He's got lots of friends. And then he's got like 12, his, his disciples. And then out of his 12, he's got his, his inner three the best friends, right? Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John get to go on like this camping trip with Jesus, Right? So they go up on this mountain, but instead of Jesus like making the fire, he becomes the fire. 
And suddenly, like, the veil of his humanity is sort of peeled back, and they see him in his glory. And it's not just Jesus that they went fishing with. It was Jesus, God. And Peter goes, this is good. We should hang out here. And then you hear God the Father from heaven goes, this is my son. Listen to him. And everybody hits the deck. Face down in the dirt, right? Confronted with the holiness of God in that moment with Jesus. And at each one of these, Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, and with Jesus, we see that God's holiness was dangerous. But the result of that dangerous proximity was that holiness was designed then to infect the people that got near it. Right? The nation of Israel was supposed to take God's holiness. They were supposed to, as they were close to the temple, they were supposed to become more holy, to reflect him that much more, and then be that light, that holiness to the nations. That was their job. But the holiness of God is dangerous. And I don't want you to just think that that's an Old Testament thing. Because look at what happens in Revelation chapter 1. This is John, one of the guys that was up on the mountain with Jesus, right? One of the besties. In fact, I would say that, that John was probably Jesus' best friend. It says he was his beloved, the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved the most. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at John and he said, would you take care of my mom for me? That guy. Now, after Jesus was, was gone, 40, 50 years later, John has this revelation and you would think he's going to see Jesus. You would think that if he got to re be reunited with Jesus, that it would be some amazing like big bear hug moment, right? It would be a high fives, best friends. Check this out. Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." This is John, Jesus' best friend. And when he is confronted with Jesus in all of his holiness, he's on his face in the dirt. It's not just an Old Testament thing. God is that holy that even John, when he sees Jesus in all his glory, goes, oh, I'm dead. And he hits the ground. Now, I love this quote this helps me understand this a little bit better. I'm going to read you guys a quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was C.S. Lewis, a great author. Um, and in this story, Jesus is personified as Aslan, this lion. Okay? And so there's this point when the characters are, are learning about this environment and they need to meet Aslan. And there's this little girl talking to a beaver. And this is how the conversation goes. He says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, 
said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Of course he's not. He's a lion. He's not safe, but he's so good. You're going to want to be around this not safe lion. I think C.S. Lewis did a great job of depicting our God in that description, right? He is not safe. Don't ever make him safe because you're making him smaller than he is. But he's so good. He's so, so good. He's a lion, but he's a good lion. Now, once we have our head wrapped around who God is, that God is this lion in this story, right? That God is so powerful, so holy, so perfect that he is dangerous. Then we can address the problem that the people had at Mount Sinai. You remember? They were afraid. Rightfully so, right? The mountain was shaking. They were terrified. Adam was afraid. He hid in the bushes. Isaiah was afraid. He, he thought he was going to die. Because that is how powerful and holy God is. But also because they were experiencing God before the work of the cross. I know we've been in a lot of scripture, but I'm going to take you to another one. Let's go to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews talks about Mount Sinai. He talks about this moment where they were in Exodus, where they were at the foot of this mountain. And this is what he says to us, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. He's talking about Mount Sinai. And he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyous assembly, not fear, joy. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all. There it is. He's still the judge. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I love this. Lest you think that your God is not the God of Mount Sinai. The God of Mount Sinai is the God of Mount Zion. The God of Mount Sinai is your God. Nothing has changed about him. He is still that holy that he, he inspires fear. He's, he's so big. He's so terrifying. And, and yet he says, I'm so not okay with you being afraid that I have a solution. I inspire fear, but I don't want you to be afraid. But here's my solution. You're unholy, and you can't be around me because I am holy. I need you to acknowledge that, and then I have a way of seeing you as holy, as making you holy. Did you catch it here at the top of the slide? You've come to a God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
that the people who stand before God in Jesus, he sees them as perfect because they were made that way, not because they were intrinsically perfect or righteous. Here's, here's how this works. We get to trade our unholiness for Jesus' holiness. And when we make that trade, suddenly an unholy person, I am so wretched. I do so many dumb things, right? But because I say, yeah, my holiness is never going to be okay, or my unholiness is never going to be okay in God's throne room, and Jesus says, that's okay, I'll trade you. I figured it out. I figured out a, a way for you to stand there. I will take that if you will take my perfection. And then suddenly when we've said, yeah, I'll take that deal. I'll put my faith in, in what you've done and not who I am. Suddenly we can approach this whole moment when we see God in his throne room with joy instead of fear, right? And here's the thing. We will all stand before this God this mountain-shaking, thunder and lightning-creating, terrifying, holy, perfect, good, just, loving, healing God. We are all going to stand before him. And the moment that you are before this holy God, you will be on your face. I don't think that is a with or without Jesus question. <laughs> I think John was on his face too. You will just be... It, in awe of his holiness. And your only response is going to be to hit the ground. But I didn't go far enough when I was reading in Revelation. I want to show you what the very next couple verses look like. Verse 17 said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me. You guys have to understand, the right hand in the Bible is the hand of power, the hand that can judge, the hand of authority. He put his right hand on me and he said, well, he didn't say, I'm so glad you hit the dirt. I was going to kill you. Don't look at me. He didn't say that, did he? He put his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I love this moment. Confronted with God's holiness, Jesus' holiness, John hits the dirt and Jesus reaches down and says, no, look up at me. Don't be afraid. John, it's me. I love you, John. You can stand up in my presence. I love that. See, the same God that inspires so much fear and that's worthy of it because of who he is says, don't be afraid. He's worth fearing, and yet he lifts us up to himself. That's a good God, right? Now, all the benefits of your relationship with God, all the things that you like, you like being healed when you're wounded. You like being taken care of when you're broken. You like having a place to run to that is safe or seeing your God as a good father, all of those things become so much more valuable when you really understand how special and powerful and holy he is because it forces you to see how big the distance is between you and him. There's a chasm between an unholy me and a holy God, and it's so far. And I see that more and more when I see him as perfect and holy and powerful and then I can really appreciate the bridge that he built across that chasm all the more. 
the grace that he extends to me, even though that's true, is so much more valuable to me. When he does love me, and he doesn't have to, that means so much more, right? You can appreciate the bridge he built if you understand how big the chasm is. And so if, if we would have started this and I would have asked you, when you first think about God, what do you think of? If I said, describe God to me, what would you say? Would you say he's your, your buddy? Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, right? He's my, he's my best friend. He's my companion. He's my safe place. Or would you have said, he's a lion. My God is a lion. He's terrifying in his power and his holiness. And then I love it when that lion takes care of me, right? So you're still his friend, you're still his companion, but in the end, his love and his care for you is so much bigger because of his holiness. See, being friends with a lion is a good thing, right? Imagine for a moment, I'm not talking like zookeeper, like imagine your best friend is the most healthy, muscular lion you've ever seen. That would be a good thing, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have to worry about food. Like, I'm hungry, lion's like, I got this. <laughs> you wouldn't have to worry about protection. He's a lion. Who's going to do anything to you? You've got a lion for a best friend. It's, it's good to be friends with a lion. It's so not good to not be friends with a lion. You know what I mean? You will stand before this God. But so will everybody else in your life, too. And I think that if we wrap our heads around the holiness of God, it does one thing for us. If we've put our faith in, in Jesus, if you're here and, and you'd call yourself a believer, and you'd, you get the benefit of seeing, man, my friend is a lion. But it also means that everybody you know that doesn't know him, they have to deal with the lion too. Does that change the way that you feel about your friend's relationship with God? I'm going to put this up on the screen for kind of a final point. If how you see God isn't built on a foundation of awe and reverence and appreciation of his power and his holiness, then you don't fully understand God. You've got this choose-your-own-adventure, customized version of who he is in your mind if it's not built on this part of who he is. And I think he would say, let's tear that down. Because that's not all of who I am. Let's rebuild your version, your understanding of me on this truth that I am so holy. I'm other than you. I'm bigger than you and I'm perfect. And that is a dangerous thing. And when we're building who we see God is as on that, everything else is so much more valuable. You will stand before this God. And in that moment, everything else is going to dissolve. Everything that you ever thought was important, everything that went wrong in 2020, everything that you care about is suddenly going to not matter the moment that you are face to face with his holiness. Do you think that John in the dirt or Isaiah with his eyes covered was worried about the things they were worried about moments earlier? I don't think so. I think the moment that you come face to face with God, all that's going to matter is his holiness. And if that's true, why do we live like that's not really going to happen? Why do we live like that moment is just 
out there somewhere? Why isn't he that holy now in your life? Why is it that we say, oh, I'll get to the things that God wants me to get to when I have some time, right? And it's like, yeah, God, I know you want me to do that thing, but like the lake, I, I, it's warm, right? I want to go to the lake. Is it, is it, or is it cool if I pad my bank account a little bit more before I start doing kingdom stuff? Because I'm not comfortable with how much I have yet. Or how, how inappropriate does it feel in light of his holiness to constantly be stiff-arming God and say, I'll get to you. You just take a number. And we put so many other things in front of what he wants for us. But he's that holy God that makes mountains shake. He's that holy God that is terrifying if you really think about it. See, I want him to bend over to me the moment I hit the ground and go, look up at me. Look, son, look. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want in that moment. Why would I live differently now? And I haven't been. I don't know about you guys. I don't think I've been living my life every day thinking, wow, this God that loves me that I serve is so, so special and holy. I think he becomes so routine and normal in my life that I, you know, I get around to things when I get around to things. It becomes more about me and what I get out of the relationship than who he is. And I'm going to guess that that's you too. And so here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. Um, I'm going to invite Amber back up. Um, You guys can all stay exactly where you are if you want to, but I want you to do something with me. I want you to, to picture yourself in the throne room of God. You. Not you in 50 years when you've figured everything out. Not you when you've cleaned up your mess. You now. It's okay. Everybody just close your eyes. Let's just we'll call this an exercise, okay? In your mind's eye, picture yourself in God's throne room, confronted with his perfection. If that doesn't cause you to look at yourself and go, well, I don't know if I should be here, then just hold that in your, in your mind for a minute until you get there. Is there anything in your life right now that you need to repent of face-to-face with a holy God? Have you been saying, yeah, your morality is, is cool and all, but I mean, I've got this heaven ticket. I put my faith in Jesus, and so you haven't been treating it seriously, and you know that he's been working on your heart to change something, and you've been stiff-arming him. Imagine you're in the throne room right now with that. What are you going to do? I tell you what, I think I'd probably be on my knees. Now, after you've sat in that for a minute, and you've sat in the weight of his holiness, I want you to picture Jesus walking up to you, putting his, his hand under your chin and lifting your gaze to his. And imagine he says to you, would you stand up in my presence and give me a hug? Would you, would you get up? Not because you deserve it, but because you're, you're holy in my holiness, 
I took that. I want you to take me seriously, but I also want you to know that that is paid for. And you can have so much joy to be in my presence. God, we're so thankful for this. We're thankful for a glimpse of your holiness. I know it is incomplete. We are going to be, it doesn't matter how much we think about it now. It's going to be more when we actually see it. It's going to shake us to our core when we're finally there. But I pray for my friends here today that we would begin to wrestle with and come to grips with all of who you are in your holiness. And that that would inspire us to take our faith a little bit more seriously or a lot more seriously. Holy Spirit, would you work on us? Would you do some surgery on, on our perspective of you? And if you need to tear it down, tear it down and rebuild it with truth. And then for everybody here in the room that, has, that feels unworthy and walks around with shame and guilt of feeling unworthy all the time, I pray that it would be able to just soak into their soul that while that is 100% true, it is or can be 100% taken care of. And that they don't have to live in that fear and that shame, that they can live with joy and an expectation that there's going to be a day I'm going to get to spend time with this lion of a God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Um, I said in there that we're all going to be face-to-face with this God. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, or if you thought you had, but maybe you hadn't really reconciled with who this God is and the fact that you're so not worthy, if this is new to you, or if God is doing something in your heart, Amber's going to keep playing. Um, As everybody else is dismissed, if you want to stick around and and meet, I'll be up here at the stage. Um, Scott will be up here at the stage. There'll be a couple of us up here. We would love to talk to you about our Jesus. We'd love to introduce you to this lion of a God that you could be safe around. God bless. Have a great week, you guys.